Behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. Jared Brown, back with us. How are you, Jared? Wonderful. How are you? Uh, I, I'm busy, as I know you are, um, but uh, I'm doing well. I'm getting a lot done, and uh, I'm, there's a lot of topics out here uh, to cover. I, you might detect to the discerning viewer, I'm a little bit of sniffles here and there, but just kind of we'll move on from that. AIAFS should okay. American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies. Hey, it's that's, a mouthful. So uh, you've been teaching, providing seminars uh, on that for how long? March of 2011. We used uh, to do them all in person, but since COVID, we're all online now and it's changed a lot of things, some for the better, some for the worse, but we're we're surviving and now we're reaching a global audience, which is nice. Before we were just reaching more of a local Minnesota based audience, Wisconsin, Iowa occasionally. Uh has the audience grown because of that change? Yeah, I've noticed more and more people from out of state, I mean all over are signing up. I have no idea how they're finding out about us, but suppose if you have an internet, you can find us and yeah, we're branching out into new and exciting topics, and these are all very professional-based trainings where they're geared toward people working in human service, criminal justice, forensic psychology, and any discipline that kind of intersects with those trainings or those disciplines. Excellent. Uh, huge variety of topics. Uh, one of which uh, is one that they, I'm so much into this stuff. Uh, not much scares me. Uh, this this one does a little bit. Um, uh, aggressive driving. Road rage. Um, yes. When I was looking up on it, this has been discussed for quite some time. Yeah, it has. It seems I'm, I've been coming increasingly interested in this topic, just hearing more and more stories, seeing things online. I've been doing more trainings on this, actually other podcasts and going to be putting together an article on this topic too. And COVID's amplified it in, in a lot of ways as well. And the stress and worry and hardship and adversity in our society, I think has amplified this too. And as I started digging into this research, there's a lot going on with this. A lot of moving parts, a lot of variables, lots of people talking about it. And hopefully I'll cover it today more from a psychological lens, kind of what, what's going on in the psychology of these individuals? What drives them to do this? What factors do we need to take into account? And I'll weave in some clinical and forensic things too as well. Um, I uh, do, do you think there's a typical case um of road rage like what's the stereotypical kind of road rage case well i mean there's minor driving aggression that i think we all do from time to time 
I mean, we all probably are prone to doing this under the right circumstance, but who hasn't yelled at someone or honked a horn or tailgated mm-hmm. or sped past someone really fast? Those are considered like minor kinds mm-hmm. of aggression. And sometimes those minor can progress into full-blown road rage, but it's mm-hmm. really, I, I really see it as a spectrum where it can start out, it could be driver anxiety that's talked about in this literature. So it's important to be aware of like anxious driving behaviors, what's going on there around that. There's driver related stress, which we're all prone to that too. Maybe we get up late and our alarm clock doesn't go off and we're running behind schedule and we need to get to a job interview. The very nature of that stress and anxiety could be a potential triggering event for some people. We also need to be aware of just other types of problematic driving behaviors that may not really constitute full-blown road rage, but it's something we need to be aware of. And before, I mean, what I do want to really stress for your audience is road rage is probably the most extreme kind of side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the low, low, low grade of this could be just driver stress where the person has the thoughts of maybe wanting to cut someone off, but doesn't act on it. And then you have everything in between. And hopefully I can break that down for your audience today. What are all those factors in between and some of the risk factors, warning signs? There is profiles for this, of course, but now with COVID, the stress, the worry, all of these things, even trauma, executive function, I'll talk about that today too. A lot of factors at play here dehydration that's talked about in this literature too happens if someone's driving for long periods of time and they're dehydrated that dehydration could be a factor where it impacts their thinking so a lot lot of things to think about um just real quick operational definition wise what what is it that that is not uh the aggressive driving or road rage is there specific incidents that we say we exclude from that I would say driver anxiety uh-huh. would not be necessarily, again, considered road rage or driver aggression, but that anxious driving under the right circumstance could trigger road rage, maybe in that anxious driver in some cases, but the anxious driver, if they're driving slow and they're like keeping traffic really slow that could be a triggering event for someone else behind the anxious driver too. Driver stress, a stressful driver doesn't indicate obviously road rage, but people who engage in road rage are gonna have some level of driver stress. What happens if it's a new driver and they just got a license and there's a lack of awareness and education where they cut someone off unintentionally, that wasn't their intent, but they just don't have a lot of knowledge and skill. And that very act triggered someone else to engage in full-blown road rage. And it's not just what's going on in the car. Uh Pedestrians can have a factor in this. People on a bike. Right. There's been many many examples of that. So just poor driving, uh, inebriated, drunk driving, um, unless it it is uh, requiring some kind of intent to disrupt another driver or pedestrian is that a good operational definition of it 
Yes, but what happens if we're dealing with a driver who is extremely impulsive too, where they didn't set out to do this, but their brain goes from zero to 60 in a second. We have some rage control issues then where it wasn't premeditated. They just went so fast. And that's an indication of maybe some self-control deficits, executive functioning impairments, mm-hmm. and maybe even some metacognition deficits, which I can definitely talk about. But if you dig into the literature on road rage, this term hasn't been around that long. I think everything I've read about it, I think it was coined or popularized in the popular media sometime in the late 1980s, which that's still several decades ago. But in the world of like research, that's not that long ago. Mm-hmm. So part of these definitions are going to include some level of hostility to another driver. Mm -hmm. or a pedestrian or someone Mm -hmm. on a bike where their intent might be to harm them, to make them afraid, to get back at them. So we need to look at obviously what their intent was. Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? Was it driven in some sort of cognitive impairment? Was it driven out of rage because before they got in their car that morning, they just found out their spouse was going to divorce them. So a lot has to do with what's going on before they got in the car. Did they just lose their job and now they're driving home and they're rageful? A lot of precipitating factors we need to take into account as well. Uh, In the news is uh, uh, Daryl Brooks or it's Daryl Brooks Jr. maybe. Uh, having a having a very interesting trial um, in uh, Wisconsin, where last year he uh, ran into a Christmas parade, and it was a mass murder uh, with his vehicle for racial or political reasons. We're not. Re- I'm not really sure on those details. I don't know if that counts as road rage or not or can we exclude it as more more in the terrorism mass murder category that's the kind of thing i'm thinking about yeah well there's a debate to be made obviously if it is road rage that was the extreme extreme end of it where it did result in homicide and there are cases if you dig into this literature road rage has resulted in obviously homicide what happens if it's an intent to kill yourself as well, where the person uh-huh. was trying to not only hurt other people, but also kill themselves as well. Mm-hmm. So that that's discussed in this literature. But breaking down, I think, road rage a little bit more for your audience. Was there any intent to intimidate someone else while that person was driving? That comes up a lot. And so we want to be aware of intimidation, threatening behaviors hand mm-hmm. gestures out the window what mm-hmm. about pointing a gun at someone in your car mm-hmm. or making a a move towards someone in a walkway where someone's walking across the person drives really fast to make them think they're going to hit them and then hits the brakes right away that intimidation or threatening behavior absolutely okay. road rage is their intent to hurt another person with their car or kill another person Those are all factors to take into account when we think of road rage. And there can be direct harm with road rage, obviously, to the driver, the passenger, or other pedestrians. Mm -hmm. There can be indirect harm, too, where just someone witnessing that 
on the side of the road. Maybe they weren't involved directly, but just witnessing road rage could be very traumatic and be a triggering event too. So we need to take that into account. And maybe there was accidental harm. The person was just furious. They're sleep deprived. Uh -huh. They just lost their job. Maybe their spouse is leaving them. They'd get in the car under the right circumstance. Someone cuts them off and all of this flood of emotion comes out uh -huh. and they act so impulsively and end up doing something terribly that obviously has implications for them and the community and it could result in death in some cases. So I want so, to go ahead. That's kind of what I'm, uh, you, you mentioned those several scenarios and is a, so yeah, you could have somebody that's in a state of rage that gets in a car. Yeah. Um, but a discriminative stimulus is some type of conflict with another car, with the pedestrians, uh, with the bicyclists, um, maybe even, I even say like the construction workers, uh, telling them to slow down as you, I see a lot of that, they get mad at the construction workers. And then you have an incident that that be, that is, uh, perhaps a stereotypical road raid, road rage incident. Those are big parts of it. The main triggering events for road rage, if you dug into this empirical based literature, slow driving. So if someone's stuck behind a slow driver, that could be a triggering event. Uh -huh. Reckless behavior of other drivers could make that driver feel like it's their duty to like point out to the other person, you're doing something wrong. This is dangerous. Stop it. But those events could trigger road rage in both drivers. Uh -huh. Discourtesy and hostility by other drivers. So some drivers may showing disrespect by honking the horn or flashing uh -huh. the middle finger. Uh -huh. Some literature has also pointed to the fact that road rage is going to be more common when it's warmer outside. Again, not always the case, but warm temperatures could be a factor. And I suspect, let's say someone's stuck in rush hour traffic and it's a hundred degrees outside and they're in a car that has absolutely no air conditioning. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with heat exhaustion. Maybe you could be dealing with low grade dehydration. And then all of those things could be fuel on the fire. Time urgency is often talked about in this literature. Too. Right. So again, if someone feels really rushed for time and it's something really important. Time urgency needs to be considered. And then just really being aware of what other stressors is going on in this person's life outside of that car, mm -hmm. personal, family, financial, could be medical, could mm -hmm. be mental health, could be substance use withdrawals. I mean, there's, these are just a few of the triggering events that we would want to be aware of that's talked about in this literature. And we often see too, these kind of triggering events discussed in some of the popular media. Do people take their cars uh, very personally, almost to the extent that it's an extension of themselves? And uh, if you do something to their car, you've done it to them. Without a doubt, some people, yes. Uh -huh. Because the car, for some is a sense of protection uh -huh. where maybe every other aspect of their life, they feel out of control in, but in that car, maybe it gives them a sense of power and control that they don't have. 
for some, the car is an adaptive kind of mechanism where it gives them freedom to escape something else. It gives them freedom to make money, to go to work. It allows them to decompress. So if someone ever gets in the way of their opportunity to kind of maybe get out of their house because they're dealing with tons of stress and go for a nice ride somewhere and someone cuts them off, that could be a triggering event as well. So yes, it's another factor. What gives people greater independence, um, decision-making power, potential for income, although you know the internet's coming more for that, potential to access things than their vehicle does. And they, they care a whole lot. Um, I don't know if it's a male-female issue. I know a lot of guys are uh, very protective and almost to the point uh, that they love their cars. So, um, you know, and, and of course they take care of the paint job and all that. If somebody scratches up their car, um, you know, they see it as a violation. I'm speculating here, but, you know, I can easily see that happening. There's some gender studies that have been examined. Uh, yeah. and. Needless to say, I mean, most people probably know this road rage is more often committed by males than females. But again, it's not going to be 100 percent. But and if they see their car as a possession. Absolutely could be a triggering event for some. And I in high school, I can remember people, classmates. Yes, that that car was like a child to them. And if you looked at it wrong, watch out. Well, they'll, uh, they could potentially attract girls with it or, or get respect from other people. You know, yeah. it's a sign of your income and, uh, you know, so I, I think people take their vehicles very personally. They do. Absolutely. So the origins of the driver aggression, we were talking, you had talked a lot. You were on the criminologist podcast, uh, um, a couple of months ago. You had talked a lot about um, the brain yeah. and how that might be, and then uh, some things about impulse control. How does that relate to this, you think? Well, there there's plenty of studies that look at executive dysfunction and risky driving behavior. So if your audience isn't familiar with the topic of executive function, mm-hmm. it's the boss of the brain, it's the CEO of the brain, it guides day-to-day behavior, so decision-making, problem solving, reasoning, those kind of things. If you're working in mental health or criminal justice arenas, the overwhelming majority of clients in those arenas have some level of executive functioning impairments. When we look at this through a driving lens, if someone has lower levels of executive function, they're probably gonna have problems with something called inhibition. Inhibition is our internal parking brake So if we have lower levels of inhibition, we're more likely to be impulsive and have self-control issues and self-regulation deficits. Executive function can impact our decision-making on the road. It can also impact working memory. Working memory is our brain's post-it note. So when we're driving down the road, there's a lot of stuff going on. We need to keep track of that information. So working memory is another component. And if some people have executive functioning impairments, they may be more prone to not using healthy forms of coping during times of stress. So if they can't cope with stress while driving, 
they may engage in problematic driving behavior as a coping strategy where it, it can really have a snowball effect really quickly and get out of hand and, and cause death in some cases, unfortunately. So executive function, huge uh -huh. topic. The very nature of young drivers driving on the road is another factor. Uh -huh. Our executive function is still developing and our prefrontal cortex is still developing well into our early 20s. So if you're talking about a new driver who's 16, they already have underdeveloped cognitive skills as well. So that could be a factor. And then if you throw other things into the mix, are they chronically sleep deprived? Are they pounding down the, the caffeine, the sugar sweetened beverages, their insulin's off, their glucose levels are off. There's heart rate variability. We can talk about all this stuff if you want, but there's so many things going on in the body too that could be a factor. Is that too in light of what we know now about brain development maturity? Do you think 16 is too young to uh, drive 16 or 17 too young? What do you think about that? Probably not, to be honest with you, because there, there are people I know that lived in farming communities who were driving years before. Mm -hmm. Part of it is just modeling behavior, mm -hmm. teaching these skills over and over again, obviously. But the problem is when I was in high school, I graduated high school in 96. Should I have had a license at the age of 16? For me personally, probably not. Mm -hmm. But looking at one's maturity level and let's compare when I graduated high school in 96 to now, the population of the United States is so much higher now too. So that's another factor. There's more uh -huh. cars on the road. There's more variables. People are more stressed out nowadays, it seems like, more depressed, more anxious, more sleep deprived. There's a lot of things pulling at people that can make them at least at the very least become more distracted and stressed out drivers. And now you throw COVID into the mix, all the COVID stress, these are all amplifiers. So it gets tough. Yeah. And so that is an important, the, the statistical likelihood of it, just with the increase in drivers that you'll just have more incidents. Uh, I don't know if the driving now is, is more likely to be distracted with people texting and driving yes. with the other, you get a call with cell phones, you could get a call or a text or, or a signal. Uh, while while you are driving, and then all the other um, distractions yes. that are out there uh, now that uh, would be factors in this that weren't so much in the past. Huge. You bring up a good point. Something called mind wandering. You want to uh -huh. be aware of which which is a form of distraction. Which, if your your mind's wandering, you have a hard time really staying focused and having like mindful attention. So yeah, when, when I was driving, we didn't have cell phones like that in the car. Now you have that. And now the, when people hear their phone beep sometimes, it's like an automatic physiological reaction yeah. that I have to turn my head and look at it. Yeah. Even turning your head for a second away from the road can be very dangerous. So is are more people prone to road rage? Tough to say, but I guarantee they're more prone to mind wandering, distracted driving. There's more things for their brain to process. 
I do a lot of work in the area of like special populations and brain injuries and autism and ADHD. Uh And there's a lot of articles that have been published on just driving behavior in those populations. And it's just fascinating too, because there's a lot of things going on in the person's brain that could be a factor with distraction, but there could be also things in the environment. Here's one thing. I know there's a, there are a couple studies that look at this too. The very nature of having a passenger in your car mm-hmm. is just as distracting as being on your cell phone, the research shows. People are surprised to hear that. That's surprising. It, it surprised me too, because who hasn't had people in the car? Because you're probably looking over, conversating. It's something to be aware of. And how many people are in the car too, in the back seat? What is their temperament like? Is someone driving who's trying to show off to people and they're driving even faster? Uh-huh. Are people using drugs or alcohol in the car at the time uh-huh. too? Having a pet in the car, what happens if the pet jumps up on your lap while you're driving? That could be very distracting as well. Mm-hmm. Trying to eat or drink in the car? Yes, absolutely. Is a common thing. So people... Uh... I they seem to see as their car, especially yeah, maybe now more than ever, and all the commuting people are doing. They see the car as a second home, and when you're home, you're more relaxed and you act like how you want to act. Yeah. Um, and and maybe people are uh, you know they're on the road so much as part of their job, so they have all the cars have little drink holders now, and uh, they've got places to put things. And they have a nice big console. To, so it's become very much very home-like. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is maybe both leading to distraction and to a sense of violation uh, if your home, your car is disturbed. Another variable to take into account, absolutely. And are some people actually living in their car now because of poverty, homelessness, economic uncertainty? Uh-huh. And- I suspect that that's another piece of the puzzle. I mean, again, there's probably not one thing to point to that is going to say that person is going to commit road rage. It's usually a combination of factors that are going on in the car, in the environment, or even way before. But there could be also physiological things going on with that person that could contribute to more unrest in their mind and body and thinking that could be a factor as to why some people do this behavior. Um, so uh, physiologically, um, you had talked about um, lexithymia. Lexithymia is an emotional processing, emotional awareness deficit. Not a lot of research on this within the context of driving per se. There's a few articles that talk about it, but there are literally hundreds and hundreds of articles on alexithymia in general. Mm-hmm. But if you're, your audience hasn't heard of this, think of it as emotional blindness, emotional mm-hmm. unawareness, where someone that has true alexithymia has a hard time understanding, processing, labeling, making sense of emotions. So if they're behind the wheel and something really frustrating happens to that driver and they have alexithymia, which is a personality construct. It's not a disorder. It co-occurs with many disorders 
And it's been shown to be higher in violent offenders, domestic abusers, sexual offenders, people who use drugs and alcohol. They're driving down the road. Someone cuts them off, does something that really makes them mad. Mm-hmm. Someone without alexithymia who has good coping skills may just say, you know, that person's probably having a bad day. Let's cut them some slack. Or we use our coping skills. Maybe we have the thought of honking our horn or cutting them off, but our brain tells us that's probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Someone with alexithymia, if they have that emotional block, all that negative energy goes into their body, mm-hmm. which then can create more physiological dysregulation, stomach mm-hmm. pain, chest pain, heart rate variability. It could disrupt our breathing. We could have more tension in our body. Then all that emotion comes flying out and it could come uh-huh. flying out from yelling, screaming, driving fast. Uh-huh. So it is something to be aware of. Alexithymia really is a threat to our emotional and physical health. It's a big topic. I talk about it all the time in podcasts. It's I encourage your audience. If you want to study human behavior and understand why people may do the things they do, understand that topic along with executive function and metacognition to name a few. Could there be a uh, conditioning uh, of you're in your car and you have all these incidents where someone cuts you off and you, I know people that they swear at the drivers, the windows are up, they, no one can hear them. Yeah. They, they yell at the driver, give advice to other drivers uh, sure. that cannot hear them and then uh, may go as far as threatening. So it's a priming and it's a uh, probably a behavioral momentum to keep building up and all you need then is a uh, a greater uh, stimulus uh, like an accident or a cutoff or stuck in traffic and can't get through uh, is that going to then uh, prime the pump so to speak so that you're going to have um, a big rage incident and that's also in keeping with some of the physiological neurological things that you mentioned it could possibly be a factor in some cases what comes to mind when i hear that is is the person dealing with any rumination mm-hmm. maybe even anger rumination where they have a tendency to not let things go and and something makes them really frustrated it gets stuck in their thinking so then they kind of have that spiral effect and it's over and over and over and it's like a snowball effect and it grows and grows and grows and then it grows to the point where they snap and it's full-blown rage that could be a factor in some of these cases as well on the old um, Unsolved Mystery show, um, I'll go through. This was the case of Richard Adderson, Fishkill, New York, you know, on February 5th, 1997. He was an assistant superintendent at Valley Central School District. Um, he was married, had three children. So around 6 p.m. Uh, on that date, he was driving home in rush hour traffic, Interstate 84, when he was sideswiped by another vehicle, the cars pulled over to the side of the road um, about a quarter mile from exit 12. Uh, they got out of their cars and uh, they, the one man started yelling at this man, Richard Adderson. After a brief but heated argument, Richard asked to see the man's license. The man pulled out a gun and shot Richard once in the chest. The man then drove away heading eastbound 
Richard returned to his car, dialed 911, and described the incident, the shooting, and the person that shot him. He was taken to the hospital but passed away from his injuries about an hour later. Um, the police set up a roadblock in an attempt to locate the killer or any witnesses. Several people did report seeing the argument, but nobody saw the accident or the actual shooter. Richard's killer has never been identified or apprehended. That, um, that aired on the old, the great Unsolved Mysteries show, May 29th, 1998. So that I think of as a classic type of road rage case. Most extreme sad case, but you turn on the news, you, you see cases like this frequently around the country and these are real. I mean, it happens. And it's one of the reasons why I'm studying this and hopefully teaching others and writing articles, doing more trainings and podcasts to learn about this. So hopefully we can implement strategies and interventions to hopefully minimize this as much as possible. So in a case like that, that that's kind of what worries of me because so you get in an accident and, um, well, you get in an accident and no one's seriously hurt. What should you do? Be aware of your surroundings for one, uh-huh. obviously. Uh-huh. Trust your gut instinct uh-huh. and try to keep the situation as managed as possible. So you don't want to come in there blazing guns and start screaming and yelling. And because we just don't know what the other person is thinking. So trying to approach it in a really a trauma-informed manner. I, I think I'm a big fan of trauma-informed care. So trying to come in, obviously you're frustrated. Someone sideswiped you. Hopefully it was an accident. Having some grace, kindness, compassion, and just exchanging information, keeping it calm. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes away safe. You're alive. Properties may be damaged some, but in the end, what's more important? life is way more important than property and just try to be a good driver as well be a good defensive driver learn your own triggers learn some calming and relaxation skills that can help maybe you diffuse if you Uh get amped up because when you're amped up and the other person's amped up it's usually not going to go down unless someone decides to take a step back and like defuse the situation be aware of your body language too, uh-huh. especially through a trauma-informed lens. Some some people may be very triggered by someone talking loud or too fast or talking too close. And in some cases too, I mean, maybe you don't get out of your car because something you just don't feel right. Call 911, get the police there before engaging with the individual or driving to a lit area where it's highly populated. We can do all these things, but in the end, it's not going to prevent 100% of these incidents because there's there's so many variables out of our control. But those are a few things that I, I would recommend. Well, the, the car and modern life, it, it brings about like the anonymity you have just going out there, but you have no idea who all is around you and who you could encounter. And that's the, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a spooky thing about it. Like at any moment, on uh, some accidents you absolutely cannot avoid. Uh, most uh, try and avoid them as much as you can. So uh, it, it's kind of an interesting, in, in a moment, you, you're going to meet someone that 
you would never meet otherwise. And then something violent could happen depending on how, you know, all the learning history and all the physiological dynamics that have built up to that moment. Yeah. There are wild cards out there that uh-huh. you just you don't know. So maybe it would it would be good for all the drivers like, you know, sit in your car before you take off and take a deep breath. And, you know, if there if something happens, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay calm. I'm going to look, see what's around me. And uh, I'll uh, have my insurance information ready. I'll ask for their insurance information and we'll do what we're supposed to do. Just change. And then if, you know, if my vehicle is, I can leave, I can leave, but I'm going to stay, you know, you're going to plan for that in advance. I'm a big fan of emotional intelligence literature. Mm -hmm. So anytime you can become an emotionally intelligent, informed driver, Uh you're probably going to be in a better position than a non emotionally intelligent individual. Cause emotional intelligence is really rooted in having better self-awareness of our own moods and behaviors, but also practicing really good self-care, self-regulation. Typically, higher levels of emotional intelligence are going to be related to increased levels of interpersonal effectiveness. So we're going to be more effective in how we communicate and also being able to use empathy and cooperation skills and perspective taking a lot better. And part of emotional intelligence is being more flexible and adaptable which are components mm-hmm. of resilience, which if we're more resilient, we can bounce back from stress and tough stuff a lot easier. So those are some things too, to really be aware of. The, the emotional intelligence uh, can be used, number one, for your own safety uh, by being able to make, to be flexible and be aware, and then to keep an incident from uh resulting in a level of anger and impulsive impulsivity that you could later regret. The, that would be the goal because people with higher levels of emotional intelligence are typically better able to utilize skills to reduce conflict and solve problems more effectively. Again, we could do all the right things. There's always the wild cards out there, but as a whole, people with higher levels of emotional intelligence are happier, healthier, think better, can handle stress more effectively. All of those things can play a huge positive role when we're driving. Um, Probably another kind of definitional uh, issue. So someone that um, has committed, is in the act of committing a crime, like they just robbed a bank and they use their car to get, you know, knock your car out of the way maybe we'd, we would exclude that from like the classic road rage definition. That's much more deliberate utilitarian kind of action than what we're thinking of uh, otherwise. Uh, do you agree? I would agree. I'm still just as dangerous and it could uh-huh. trigger a full-blown rage event by yeah. other people. But the intent behind that was like, you already committed a crime. Now you're using your car to get away and you hit another car, not the intent probably to hurt them, the intent to get them out of the way to move to somewhere else. Right. Yeah. So where would you, uh, where would you take the research on this or the understanding of, uh, 
aggressive driving road rage phenomenon? Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of what do we do about this? So continuing to look at interventions, are these things taught in school? Now we go to driver's ed class, we take the classes behind the wheel. How often are these things really taught in those classes? Teaching ongoing too. So once someone gets their license, do they have refresher courses? Do they have other trainings to go to? How often do parents talk to their kids about these things? How mm -hmm. often are there discussions at in the job environment? There's not a lot that I'm aware of. There's very few people that I see, at least through doing online searches, that offer professional trainings in this topic as well. So getting more training out there for mental health clinicians, criminal justice, human service, social service, and really start infusing, I think, trauma-informed care approaches into this work, mm -hmm. executive function-informed, attachment-informed, and sleep too. Sleep plays a huge role in this. Chronic sleep deprivation, untreated sleep apnea. Yeah. Yeah. We're, all, we're all doing so much and it's yeah. cutting away from other needs we have. Yeah. And the last thing too, what I'm a huge fan of like the nutrition world. Mm -hmm. What happens if someone's dealing with blood sugar dysregulation and their blood sugar drops or spikes really high or again, they're dehydrated? What role does that play? I think more research into that too on the physiological biochemistry component of this as well would be really fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, I, this is a true story. I know someone that got in trouble. He described it as a road, I'm not really sure what happened, but as a road rage incident, had to go up in court and the judge uh, gave him a choice. He said, well, you can do, you know, whatever the 60 days in jail or whatever it was, um, or I wanna see you, uh, go become a stand-up comedian. Like he's supposed to say, uh, sign up at a like a club or something like that um, and uh, tell jokes. Uh, somehow this would be monitored, maybe be like a probation or something monitored. So, uh, you know, that's what he did. Um, and he was like going like trying to learn us, you know, how to tell jokes and things. So he had to go up. But the whole idea was to take life less seriously. Um, and I think that is uh, a very interesting, uh, probably cognitive behavioral intervention. Start doing the opposite of whatever it is that leads to the behavioral problem. So if it's taking life too seriously, be a stand-up comic. And, it, and I think that guy probably, he had had diabetes. I think he'd had other things in his life that uh, probably related to a lot of the uh, neurological, physiological factors you were talking about. So I just found that to be an interesting uh, uh, story uh, that he told about that. And he, and he actually, I think he ended up being able to tell some pretty good jokes. <laughs> humor, there's a, I know a lot about the humor research from my work with clients with autism. A lot of research on humor and really using that as an adaptive coping strategy. It can diffuse a situation, but taking it a step further, I think self-compassion uh -huh. has a lot to do with this, cutting ourselves some slack, uh -huh. some grace, and maybe even self-forgiveness, because maybe we're holding on to some anger, working on that, maybe finding a counselor, therapist, is there other things that are building up in this person 
where if they would have went and talked to someone or got some help, or maybe if even talking to the medical doctor, because they're they are dealing with maybe some medical comorbidities, just living a healthier, well-balanced life, talking out your feelings, taking care of your sleep, your nutrition. I mean, all these play a huge role in how we think and feel, and hopefully it trickles down into making better and more informed decisions on the road. Yeah, on the road and, and everywhere else um, Absolutely. they are. So, yeah, and it's hard to be uh, compassionate toward other people if you're not compassionate toward yourself then. Very true. whole bunch yeah. of research on self-compassion. Very powerful stuff on that too. Okay. Jared, uh, this has been great. Very informative. It made me think a lot about, you know, oh. time. We don't think much about driving. We just do it. Um, I agree. I know. <laughs> that in that whole environment uh, could be a very interesting place. So uh, thank you so much, Jared. You're um, welcome. And uh, I, uh, you're covering so many topics that uh, I want to cover more uh, in the near future. So let's. Uh, uh, we'll see if we can work something out. Thanks again for having me back. Really appreciate it. No problem. Take care, Jared. You too. Bye-bye. been criminal behaviorology check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm please send questions comments and requests for transcripts to criminal at gmail.com